We will be reading from the book of Hebrews. We will be reading two short passages. First from Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12, and then Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. So I will begin with Hebrews 10, 11 to 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now turn to chapter 12, and we will read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring back to chapter 11, where a great group of men of faith, women of faith, um, that's what therefore is therefore. So, <laughs> therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, I, I forgot to mention as I was doing announcements, but Jeff is on the tail end of his quarantine, so if you heard, he had COVID last week. So he's going to actually be joining us by video this morning uh, that he record, recorded just a couple days ago. So there you go. Wish I could be there with you again this morning, but still testing positive for COVID, even though symptoms are mostly gone. I just didn't want to risk spreading it or sharing it with anyone well, remember, today we are continuing our series that we're calling The Heart of Jesus, in which we're looking at uh, these, these kind of questions. What is it that primarily defines Jesus? Not just what has Jesus done for us or taught us, but who is he in his person? What is it that drives Jesus, Jesus from his heart? And what is he really like in his being? Or how about this? What is his disposition towards his people? What drives him and moves him towards sinners and sufferers, and what comes naturally to him. Well, last week, thank you to one of our elders, Bob Yoder, who preached on Jesus' sympathy. Uh, this morning, we look at his joy. Did you know that you, we, can cause Jesus joy? And it's not just by our obedience, our good works, or evangelizing. Hebrews 12 tells us something profound that Jesus' joy is increased in our failures when we find fresh forgiveness in him. That's astounding. But here's our challenge today. I'm not sure we believe that, or at least function, functionally live that, that that's the reality. How do I know? Because when I first sin, my first instinct isn't usually to run to Jesus. Why is that? Well, let's look at three observations today together to help us understand that and, and, and Jesus' joy and, and to connect us to it. 
So grab your outline, hopefully you've got it there. It should match today. Uh, keep Hebrews 12 open as we look at a couple verses out of Hebrews 12. And let's look at our first observation from this passage. Our first observation is this, Jesus's joy comes through a cross. Verse two of, of chapter 12 has our key phrase in it this morning. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he seated at the right hand of God. Well, what was the joy waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? The two go hand in hand. The joy couldn't come without Jesus going through the cross, and the cross came because it was necessary to bring him, Jesus, joy on the other side. But what is this joy of Jesus? If we're trying to explore the heart of Jesus in this series, and if joy is such a powerful thing, this is really important, the answer to that question. What was the joy on the other side of the cross? Well, here, primarily in the overall context of the book of Hebrews, it means that Jesus' joy that came through the cross was, was seeing his people forgiven on the other side. Like we are called to run the race of the Christian life, which we're going to talk about in a moment, Jesus ran a race too. It was a race towards the cross. In Luke 9, it says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In that chapter 9 of Luke, while Luke was, uh, excuse me, while his disciples were busy arguing who would be the greatest once they got to Jerusalem, Jesus had another thing on his mind. His face was set to Jerusalem for the cross. The joy set before him was in front of his mind that he would run through a cross to get to it. Hebrews makes this very clear. The point of Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's the better way. He's the better savior. He's the better high priest and that he has made the better sacrifice to end all priests and all sacrifices. To cover their sins to the uttermost, Hebrews 7.2 says. Or in those other verses we had read today from Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, they say this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. A little similar to our Hebrews 12 passage that says he sat down at God's right hand. And that phrase repeats multiple times throughout the book of Hebrews, and it means all was finished when he sat down. Everything was done when he sat down. Everything with his saving work was finished, and he was resting. He was the priest's of all priests. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priest was the connecting point between God and earth, or between heaven and earth. It was the priest that would connect you to God in the tabernacle, and then the temple, and with all of the sacrificial rituals. And these animal sacrifices, which only symbolically took away sin, not actually atoned for sin, as Hebrews 10 says too, these, these sacrifices were pointing 
to Jesus, the all-time priest. It's why we call Jesus the great high priest. He is the ultimate connector of heaven and earth, even as he came in body, even as it would happen through the cross. Through the cross, Jesus connected. He restored the rupture that had taken place in Genesis 3. It's why we call him the only way to the Father. So here's the point. The joy before Jesus, the joy that came through the cross, was the finished priestly work he would do. Opening up a way for us to be forgiven and showered with mercy and and pardon and grace. And this is what gives Jesus joy, to see his people forgiven. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which we've been using as a springboard for this series, said this about Jesus's joy. It was the joyous anticipation of seeing his people made invincibly clean that sent him through his arrest, death, burial, and resurrection. When we today partake of that atoning work, coming to Christ for forgiveness, communing with him despite our sinfulness, we're laying hold of Christ's own deepest longing and joy. There's joy in heaven when a sinner repents, Scripture says. And Jesus speaks a lot of joy, his joy and the Father's joy, that they have been sharing forever, that he wants to share with us in the Gospel of John. Well, what gives a parent or a grandparent great joy? It's when their child runs into their arms. When they fall down and skin their knee or hit their funny bone or or bump their head, when you see your child run to you, it fills you with great joy and you gather him or her up into your arms because you are their safe place. What gives Jesus joy? Well, it's our second observation. The joy came to the cross, but our second observation is what gives Jesus joy is when we run to his arms for forgiveness and healing. It's our second observation in your outline. When we run to forgiveness and healing, we activate his joy when we run to Jesus. Jesus' joy, it activates and increases to the degree that sick sinners come to him for forgiveness and healing. But why does it activate his joy? Because when we run to him for forgiveness and healing, It's the outward display and outworking of his death and resurrection. And when we do that, he loves to shower us with mercy and grace. It's his heart. It was the joy set before him, Hebrews says. But here's the problem. I think most of you probably, as you hear this, intellectually, in your mind, you agree with me. I haven't said anything that's really challenged what you believe. Jesus paid for sinners, and he finds joy in forgiving sinners. But while we intellectually believe that, many of us don't uh, functionally believe that. How do I know? Well, some of us spend very little time communing with Jesus. Some of us really don't like to admit fresh sin to Jesus in repentance or, or take it to others and confess to others. So I know that we struggle with that. We intellectually believe it, but functionally we're not living it. 
In fact, running to Jesus sometimes is the last thing we want to do when we sin. Or think about being around his people in a Sunday gathering after you've blown it on the weekend. Sometimes it's the last thing. Our mind can tell us, well, let me get my act together. Let me get some success under my belt. Maybe a few days of, of private, uh, silent devotional, silent scripture reading time. Then I'll return to you, Jesus, and make it right. And some of us are so dragged down by shame, which we're going to talk about more in a moment. Shame, which is a type of disgust that we carry about ourselves. Shame that we've never been able to work through. So I want to camp on observation number two for a bit and talk about four ways to access the joy of Jesus. Uh, functions, you might say, or signs that show that you actually do believe, not just intellectually, but experientially and in your heart, actually do believe that Jesus' joy is increased and his heart is overjoyed when you come to him with your sin. Not just intellectually, but how you function, how you live. Here's our first of the four. Lay aside every weight and sin. Lay aside every weight and sin. Running a race is hard work. I used to be a runner. Not a, not a long distance runner, but like the two or three mile kind of runner. Now I walk. That's what I do. But I know running takes great endurance. It's a sport of the body, but it's also a sport of, of the spirit or mind, you might say, because it takes endurance. It takes a, a keeping on, a fortitude and endurance, or the training that it takes to build up stamina. A couple of years back, our growth group did the Young Life 5K uh, together uh, in town here in Canby is Nick Coleman was a, the Young Life director and he was in our growth group and uh, three or four families did the race together. And we had all our kids there at the starting line and I think all of us adults were thinking that this will be a nice three mile walk together. We'll just walk this at a nice pace and, uh, and just be together and talk and hang out. Well, the race started and all the people around us just started running. Of course, it was a running race. And so what do you think all our kids did? They took off running. So Kirk Grover and I, we were there and we said, well, we'll keep up with the kids and uh, moms can stay back and talk and walk. And guess what? Kirk kept up with the kids. <laughs> my being out of shape at that time hindered my running to keep up with the kids. The writer here says a couple of things that get in the way of and hinder our Christian life. He first says this, lay aside the weights in your life. Just like it would be foolish to see a marathon runner wearing a tuxedo or an Olympic swimmer wearing a winter coat in the pool. There are things, weights, the writer calls them, that get in the way of our Christian life, that, that get in the way. And he says every weight the implication is that it doesn't have to be sinful, because he mentions that in a minute. It doesn't have to be sinful, just something that slows you down and gets in the way of your relationship with Jesus. That could be so many things. Ask yourself, what takes up your time? What do you drift to or daydream about or, or find yourself drifting towards when you have free time? It could be television, 
could be binge watching something on Netflix, streaming stuff. How about YouTube? The constant uh, autoplay of videos can take up a lot of time. Could be a sports team. Could be a, a good hobby even. All good things, but they can become our ultimate things when they become a weight that hinders our relationship with Jesus. I would say for most of us, it's probably this thing right here. What a great tool and a, a great help at times. I love putting on my map apps. It helps me get around. But what an addiction the world has with these. It too can become a weight. And the writer says to cast them off, to push them aside. That may mean cutting something out, like Jesus says with an eye, an eye or a, a hand in, another, in the Gospels. And definitely if it's causing you to sin, it's something to consider. But weights could be even good things. But he also says sin too. If you want to experience the joy of Jesus, repent of your sin. And it's not just for the initial repentance of coming to faith, but it's a life of repentance. Sin easily entangles us, the writer says. It, it clings so closely to us. Have you ever seen one of those three-legged races where two people tie their inside leg together uh, and become sort of three legs. They're impossible. They're, they're, they're church picnic nightmares. <laughs> it's so easy to trip. People stumbling all over each other, dust flying everywhere, and that's just at the starting line. Well, that's the first way to function if we want to find that joy of Jesus. It's look for the weights and sin in your life and cast them off or repent of it, sin. Here's our second way to function. Doing this takes endurance. Run with endurance. You know, you don't have to work hard to get entangled in sin. You do have to fight hard to be free from it. Not be saved, but free from it. You have to endure in the Christian life. And if you do nothing to fight sin by acknowledging, confessing, repenting, it will bring you down. It will trip you up like a three-legged race. And ultimately to death if you don't repent. John Owen, the Puritan, said the famous line, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. My hope this morning is that maybe thinking of Jesus' joy in forgiving you, will, will help you cast that sin upon him in repentance and faith. Because when you think of him as joyful in that moment, he isn't scoffing at you when you bring him your sin. Oh, here she is again. Here he is again. Does he, does he really think I, I'm listening this hundredth time? We tend to want to put limits on what Jesus can do. This time it's too much, or, or, or think that his well of forgiveness has dried up. And if that's how you view God, your God is too small. I want to say it this, but I want to say it carefully. You can't out-sin the grace of God. You can't out-experience the joy of Jesus, the joy that he's offering you in forgiveness. Let me just say, your actions aren't bigger or more powerful than God's actions. There's not a cosmic scale where your sin will outweigh God's grace. Now, someone might say, well, that kind of sounds like you're just excusing sin or 
speaking of, of cheap grace or, or abusing God's grace. Not at all. Romans 6 says we're dead to sin as true believers. And should we sin so grace then would abound more? Paul says no way. No one who truly runs to Jesus will knowingly abuse grace without some type of conviction. That's gospel-centered holiness. Grace and forgiveness are free, so we live and obey out of gratitude. It's actually usually the legalists and the moralists who are more afraid of the gospel and the free ultimate forgiveness and grace it offers. So here's our third function. If the first two were casting off the weights and, and sin and enduring, how do you do that? How do you actually do that? Well, here's our third, our third one. Look at the witnesses, but even more, Jesus. Look at the witnesses, but even more, Jesus. Did you catch the passage begins with this great cloud of, of witnesses that we are surrounded by? And I think a lot of people look at this passage and in our kind of self-focused performance, maybe competitive-driven age, we think that that cloud of witnesses are surrounding and watching us and cheering us on, especially in the context of this race. And there may be some truth to that, but most commentators mention the fact that that audience, that, that uh, cloud of witnesses, they're there for us to look at, not for them to look at us. Why do we say that? Well, Hebrews 11, the chapter right before the one we're in this morning, the author just spent that whole chapter highlighting moments of faith. Some call it the hall of faith, heroes of the faith. Uh, from the Old Testament, Abraham, Sarah, Rahab, Noah, Moses, talking about all these great acts of faith for us to look at. And he closes that chapter by talking about the great suffering and persecution that many Christians have gone through that saints had gone through being mocked and flogged, stoned, and he even says in the passage, sawn in two. Those witnesses, they are there for you and I as witnesses to what is possible in a life of faith. They're there for us to see and to study and to learn from their sins, their successes, and their sufferings. Their stories. In fact, most of the Bible is stories, making up one larger story. And stories inspire us. Stories are fleshed out theology and doctrine and truth. They're lived out faith. And that's why it's also important for us to read Christian biographies of saints in the church, to see their story, to watch them as a witness to what a life in Jesus can be like. When someone tells you how good a movie or how good a book is, it doesn't do much for you, does it? To hear, just, oh, that's a great movie, that's a great book. It doesn't do justice to the story. But when you've seen it for yourself or read it for yourself, it's, oh, that was so good. Best book ever, best movie ever. That's the power of stories in our life. And so because of that, knowing how they engage our heart and transform us, look to the stories of the cloud of witnesses but more so, the author says here in Hebrews 12, more so to Jesus. Why? Because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Waiting for us as we run this race at the finish line, most importantly, isn't the cloud of witnesses, although they may be there when we get there. 
And it actually isn't even the Christian family members who have gone before you. It's Jesus at the finish line. The founder of our faith, the perfecter, or as one translation says, the true pioneer. He paved the way for us. He ran the race for us so, so we could run ours. Which is good news because that means it's not in your own strength that we run. It's not in my own strength that I run, but it's in the strength of what he has accomplished. We're only even in this race because Jesus entered it first and he won it. And then he entered us into it as well. So when your race gets hard and you feel like you can't endure, or you feel it's just too much to bring your sin again to Jesus, look to Jesus's great endurance as the accomplisher of salvation, the one who has done it, but also as our example of how to run your own race. And how did he do it? He was always in communion with the Father, trusting his Father's word, even when it didn't look like on the surface that things would work out. Follow his example. Having a hard race doesn't mean you can't have joy. Think about how he ran his. Jesus had the hardest race, and yet he had the greatest joy of anyone who's ever lived. It's natural, and I do it too. We naturally ask Jesus to take the pain out of our race. But in the Christian life, pain and joy often go together. And for Christ, joy was the result of pain. Remember, for the joy set before him, he endured the pain, the cross. So look to Jesus. It's our third function, but here's our fourth. Our fourth one that kind of points to, do you believe that Jesus truly finds joy in your forgiveness? Or is it just intellectual? Or is it really part of your heart? Here's the fourth one, and I think it's important. Deal with your shame. Now, I say that gently or you're going to feel ashamed. <laughs> Not deal with your shame. It's deal with your shame. I think this might be one of the primary reasons we don't run our race well. One of the primary reasons we don't turn to God quicker when we sin. The shame we carry with us. What is shame? Shame is a sense of, of disgust. Not just guilt for sin, which we feel, which is right to feel, which leads us to Jesus. It's not just guilt for sin, but it's a lingering disgust and shame that causes us to berate, belittle ourselves. It's, it's a gut reaction. It's visceral response. Sometimes it plays on a dialogue in your mind. You're so stupid. Or, I can't believe you, you did it again. Or you're disgusting. Or God and those people, they don't want anything to do with you. Those are lines of shame. You know, shame is all over the Garden of, uh, of Eden. It's all over the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of Genesis. It starts there where Satan, he uses shame on Eve. Eve, you're not enough the way you are. Your relationship with God isn't enough the way it is. You need more to make up for your inadequacy. Have you considered that fruit? But it's after the fall too. We see shame at work from being known by God. From Adam and Eve knowing each other in great intimacy, Adam and Eve begin this hypothetical dialogue. Eve, I've noticed. Put on some weight. 
Not surprising given all that fruit you've been gorging on. Or Eve says to Adam, hey, Adam, cover yourself up. Get some pants on, right? What's happening? They sin, and in shame, they realize they're naked. And they cover themselves, and then they hide, full of disgust at themselves, feeling they should avoid God, each other, and others. Do you struggle with shame? Please answer yes in your mind, because we all do, unless you're a sociopath. We all struggle with shame. And shame can be a valuable tool because it real, reveals to us, reveals to you what your identity is in. And when that identity is threatened, you feel shame. Whether it's a failure at work, or with your spouse, or on the golf course, or in school. And you just can't get over it. It's your identity. And your shame is the alarm bell pointing to that. So pay attention to it. But it also keeps us from coming to Jesus because we tell ourselves, I should be better than this. But did you see in the passage here? Jesus died for your shame too. It says in verse 2, he despised the shame of the cross. He saw it and, and looked away from it, in other words. Kurt Thompson has a great quote in his book called Anatomy of the Soul. He says this, he says, he, that's Jesus, chooses to acknowledge, then disregard it. That's shame. Paying no attention to it so he uh, may pay attention to something else. The joy of sitting next to his father. We too are called to identify or, or confess our shame so as to be aware of its presence. But then, like Jesus, ignore it. Turning our attention to the joy of being with the father as he did. The one who tells us that we are his sons and daughters, and that he's deeply pleased that we are on the earth. It's the end of his quote. This is super important to deal with, our shame. It's been around since the garden, and Jesus died for it. When you don't deal with it, when you don't address it, when you don't confess it, or use the gospel upon it, it can lead to a few things. A fixed mindset of shame. A running soundtrack in your mind that berates you and beats you up, fixed in that state of shame. It can lead you to blame yourself unnecessarily. I should have, I should have, I should have, I should have. And create a false humility by calling shame humility. And it can lead to pride being used to mask over our shame and inadequacy. So what do you do with it? Well, it comes on the heels of looking to Jesus. You confess it to him. You take it to him. You confess it to God. And I would even suggest others that you trust in your Christian family, in the church. You share it. You get it out there. And you ask God to give you a proper view of how he views you, of how he looks at you. And how is that we've been hearing all morning? Joy. Joy over you. Joy at forgiving you. So deal with your shame. It's our fourth function under this second observation. When we run to Jesus for forgiveness and healing, we activate his joy. So here's our third observation. You see it in your outline there. Our third observation to help us connect with Jesus' joyful heart. The joy of Jesus' forgiveness 
becomes a great meal, we can all share it. When you cook a good meal, think uh, Christmas Eve or Thanksgiving, ham and turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy and all the fixings and a, and a chocolate cream pie to wrap it all up. Think of the joy that the cook has. Maybe not while making it, but how about when you sit down at the table? The greatest joy for the cook can come when everyone sits down together and begins to eat that great meal that the cook has prepared. I know the cook usually watches as the guests lift the first bite to their mouth. And the look of pleasure on the family's face as they share in that meal is a great reward for the cook. At least I've been told. It also helps a lot to say, hey, a great meal, great meal. But there's joy in the cook for the entire family sharing the meal that he or she has made. It's the same with forgiveness. Jesus has prepared this entire feast for us. A limitless smorgasbord, dinner table, full of mercy and forgiveness that he gives to us. It brings him joy when we eat that meal by coming to him. But also when we share it by offering forgiveness to those who seek it from us. It's our sub-point under uh, observation three, by offering forgiveness. It doesn't make sense for a Christian to have received an endless supply of forgiveness from Jesus, but to withhold it from others. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 6, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Not that we're saved by our level of forgiveness. We're saved by Christ, but that gospel-loving people, forgiven people, forgive. They've tasted the Christmas Eve dinner. And they want everyone to have a bite. They want to share that main course of forgiveness in Jesus. A forgiveness that cooks up our own forgiveness for others. But as we come to the table again today too, that's what we're doing. By sharing the Lord's Supper. We're revisiting the joyful heart of Jesus, not just in this text this morning, but as we too take of the actual meal and the elements of the Lord's Supper, we revisit him forgiving us again, feeling that fresh, experience it again. And as we ask him, I encourage you to do to make us more forgiving people too, able to share this great meal of forgiveness with others.